You're listening to a message from Victory Christian Center in Farmer City, Illinois. For more information on Victory, please contact us at vccfarmercity.org. All right, well, praise God. Welcome to church this morning. If you brought your Bible this morning, go ahead and open it to 1 Kings. Uh, We will spend most of our morning in the book of 1 Kings. Uh, We've been talking about how to be led by the Spirit, and we've covered a lot of ground in here already. Um, The last couple of messages, we are looking at a specific truth uh, that we'll look at in just a moment, um, talking about abiding in what you've heard. I introduced it two messages ago. We really dug into it last message. We looked at a brief Old Old Testament example. We spent most of the time last week in the New Testament. And I'm going to go back to that point this morning to bring out just a little more of it, and we're going to go back to an Old Testament example. Um, You should be able to find examples for any doctrine in both Old and New Testament. All of your New Testament truth is founded on a foundation of Old Testament doctrine, and we should be able to find both. So that's always a good thing. Um, As a quick review before we get there, let me go back to our core text that we've been using for this series. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 12. He says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So if you look at this whole chapter, and even back into chapter 7, he has this contrast going on, back and forth, talking about basically spirit versus flesh, talking about being led by the spirit versus being led by the flesh. And he's had this contrast going, like I said, for the last two chapters. And you get to a conclusion point where you see God does intend to lead us, fully intends to, desires to, wants to, has a plan. He's ready to lead us and does, but he does so internally. He leads us by His Spirit, leading our human spirit. The leading of God is internal. Now, leading from the outside, external leading, is flesh. That's where the enemy tries to lead us. God has a plan. He wants us to get on His path. The enemy has a plan, which in simple terms is any way he can get you off of God's path. He'll take what he can get. He'll get you as little or as far off of God's path as you'll cooperate with. But he just wants to get you off of God's path. His leading is external. And many times that leading will be through desires or temptations of the flesh. So God is wanting to lead you internally. The enemy wants to lead you externally. And then the truth we've been looking at for a couple Sundays now is 1 John 2.24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And that word abide, the same one in John 15, it means to remain, to tarry, or not to depart. To abide in something means don't depart from it, don't leave from it, to continue to be present, to be held or kept continually. So John is saying, don't depart from, stay with what God told you in the beginning, and don't stray from it. Um, We looked very briefly at Adam and Eve. Eve knew very clearly what God had said to them, you can eat of any tree you want to, don't touch this one. And sure enough, where did the temptation of her flesh flesh lead to? That one. Then we went to the Apostle Paul last week, and we looked at him literally following God's plan for his life all the way into Jerusalem to be arrested, and how a lot of people who loved him but did not know God's will for him tried to get him off path or off the course. 
This morning we're going to look at a couple of prophets. So we're in 1 Kings chapter 13. Let me give you a, a little bit of a, a timeline where we're at in history here. Um, we've already had King David. We've already had King Solomon, David's son. We're right after King Solomon. Okay, he has now handed over the kingdom to his sons. Um, he had, I believe he handed to one son who immediately did something very foolish and it led to a civil war and the kingdom divided. So we now have a northern kingdom and we have a southern kingdom. Um, and I'm going just off my memory here. From that point forward, I don't believe the northern kingdom ever did have a godly king until the northern kingdom fell. Never again since Solomon did they have a godly king. The southern kingdom had a few. I believe they had four of varying degrees who were good kings. Um, and we'll mention one of them this morning. But we're right in that time period, not long after the split. So in the northern kingdom, you've got a king named, I believe it was Jeroboam. And uh, the problem is that whole nation of Israel was built around Jerusalem. And there were feast days where every year you went to Jerusalem. And it was three of them by, commanded by God. You come down to Jerusalem and you physically be present during these feast days. Well, the problem was when the kingdom split, they did not split down the center of Jerusalem. The southern kingdom got Jerusalem. The northern kingdom quite simply did not. Well, now we got a problem because he has a nation of people who've been trained to go to Jerusalem. And we got to come up with something different. So what he did was he established two replacements in the northern kingdom. He built huge, elaborate temples in Bethel and in Dan. I got that. Yep, I got that right. So he built a replacement. We are now have an alternative to Jerusalem. And in these cities, in these alternatives, he built a temple complete with, yet again, golden calves. <laughs> Something about cows. I don't know what it is. And I'm not saying they were dumb, but it was a different culture. It was a different day. But he had golden calves built for them to worship. And then he established festivals just like they were used to. Only now with the new festivals, you, either, you get your choice, I guess. I don't know if he divided the northern kingdom. I don't know. You could go to Dan. You could go to Bethel. Come for these festivals. We're going to worship the cows and all will be great in the northern kingdom. Okay, that's kind of what's going on. Um, do you suppose God's happy about all this? Okay, yeah, I heard the giggle. Okay, so no, <laughs> God is not happy about all this. So that's where we pick it up. First Kings 13, verse 1. And behold, a man of God went from Judah, that's in the southern kingdom, up to Bethel in the northern kingdom, by the word of the Lord. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. So we have God now sending a prophet from the southern kingdom out of Judah. He now has a word from God, and he is on task, heading up to Bethel. When he gets to Bethel, to one of the new um, <laughs> worship cities, we'll call it that. <laughs> I started to call it a sanctuary city, and I'm like, that has a whole new meaning today. Let's not, let's not call it that. Let's call it something different. One of the new cities to worship at. Um, the king's there. Jeroboam is at the altar offering sacrifices on this new altar when the young prophet gets there. Verse 2. Now the young prophet cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord. So he, he's not just kind of given a generality. He is hearing the words of the Holy Spirit and he is giving voice to what the Lord is saying to him in this moment. So this is God speaking through his prophet. He says, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David and on you altar, I'm inserting, he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you and men's bones shall be burned on you. Now he's speaking to the altar, but everybody's listening. By the way, that prophecy was fulfilled, give or take, about 300 years later by King Josiah, exactly as he said to the letter. That's about 300 years down the road. But, I mean, to the letter, King Josiah did exactly that. 
Verse 3. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. So he's saying, here's the word of the Lord. Josiah is going to do all this stuff. But as a sign that you know this is God speaking, here's what's going to happen. This altar is going to split apart and the ashes in it are going to fall on the ground, which is a bad thing in that day. We, we don't know a lot about altars and sacrifices necessarily. We don't do a lot of that these days. None of us have had altar sacrifices 101 in school. But what we may not understand is if that altar literally cracks open, its ashes fall on the ground, then all of those sacrifices that created those ashes mean nothing. They've all been nullified. So all of the offerings they were giving to their gods now are no longer offerings mean nothing because they were desecrated, I guess would be the word, because they fell on the ground. They're supposed to stay in the altar. Okay? A little understanding that we may or may not get so then in verse 4, So it came to pass, when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, who cried out against the altar in Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Arrest him. And why wouldn't he? He's working very hard to unite the new northern kingdom. And we can't have them going down to the southern kingdom to worship. That's just not going to fit with his plan for the nation. So he's got these new altars. And he's trying to retrain a nation to come worship at these new altars he's built. And these new gods he's introduced. And we can't have this Yahoo whippersnapper prophet coming in here saying bad things about the altar that he just built. We'll not have that. That's bad for PR. It's going to get all over the nation. People are going to hear. That's bad for business. So what's he do? Arrest that man. Then what happens? He stretched out his hand from the altar saying, Arrest him. Then his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered so that he could not pull it back to himself. Well, that'll get your attention. He points at that man and he sells, yells, Arrest him. And his arm, it says withered. I don't know if it just literally shrank to a state of atrophy in a second, but the muscles ceased to move and he could not withdraw his arm. Now, clearly that means he could no longer do this to bring his hand back to himself. I'm wondering if he couldn't even lower it. If all of a sudden he's now in this position, there's nothing he can do about it. It's just, it don't move anymore. I don't know. I mean, where do you draw the line? I mean, if God can freeze part of it, he can freeze all of it. You know? So, that's got his attention. And that was immediate. He just had barely had the words out of his mouth. He's still pointing. And now he can't move. Are you with me? It was immediate. Can I point out, just real quick, Prophet didn't do that. I would venture to guess the Prophet didn't even know that was going to happen. Now, the chance of being arrested, that was probably on his mind. Uh, frozen arms. I bet he didn't even see that coming. He didn't do that. God did that. And why did God do that? Because he was challenging God's messenger. He was delivering God's word. And when you challenge God's messenger, you're challenging the one that sent. Now, I'm not creating something. Jesus taught that. It's not my message this morning, but you can look that up. If God sends you into a situation, he takes it personal how they treat you. Remember Paul on the road to Damascus? I mean, he was still Saul, and he was going around killing Christians. And what did Jesus say to him in that Damascus Road experience? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why? He takes it personal how you treat his servants. So in this case, that was his servant who's just doing what he was told. And God took it personal. And it was also part of the sign that everything he just said was me and this is going to happen. And now here's a sign. And that king all of a sudden, in a moment, in a flip of a switch, he was a believer. <laughs> and he knew that that was exactly what he said. But that wasn't it. So his arm withered so that he could not pull it back to himself. Verse 5. And in that same moment, the altar also was split apart. And the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. 
So the prophecy would happen 300 years later. The sign happened right there in that moment. This was quite a day in Bethel. The sign was instant. King's arm froze, altar split apart, ashes on the ground. Everybody who's there that day kind of goes, Why? All those sacrifices now mean nothing. Everything the king was doing meant nothing. The altar is now destroyed. I mean, to some degree. All right. So all this is happening in a moment. Verse 6. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, um, please entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. This guy had a change of attitude in a moment. He went from arrest him to, hey, uh, excuse me, could you pray for me? <laughs> in a moment. Total change of heart. Change of everything. So the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him. And became as before. Not only did he pray for him, God answered the prayer. Gave him his arm back. Now you might think that'd make a great change in that king. (laughs) Um, I don't believe it did. But it did in that day. So maybe it didn't change his memory that much. But it changed in that day. And so verse 7, Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me. Refresh yourself. I'll give you a reward. And there's really nothing in there, nothing in this passage that would lead us to believe it was a trap. I don't think it was. I think this guy just had his wits uh, scared out of him. And I believe it was genuine. And when a king offers a reward, it's usually a pretty good deal. Um, There are a lot of cases where you do something mighty and noble for a king. He offers you a reward. uh, You don't work another day the rest of your life. And that's... Most scholars agree that's what was on the table here. If he'd have taken up the king on the offer, he, he would not have had lack the rest of his life. Okay. Um, verse 8. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half of your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread, nor drink water in that place. Now, he's being very plain-spoken with the king. I don't think he's being arrogant, per se. And he's not necessarily being rude, but he's being very clear. He says, even if you offered me half of everything you own, I'm not going home with you. I will not eat bread with you. I will not drink water with you. Now, why? Verse 9. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. This is why we're here this morning. Here's where this story fits what we're talking about. This prophet in his service to the Lord was given a job. He said, all right, you're to go to Bethel and you're going to deliver a word of the Lord. Likewise, while you're there, you are not to eat any bread while you're there. You're not to drink any water while you're there. And you are not to come home the same way you went. He's kind of saying, if you took the interstate to Champagne, then you better come home the highway. Don't even take the same way twice. You understand? That's what's going on. Is he clear about the instructions he got from the Lord? Very clear, just like Eve in the garden. He knows what God said to him. Now, my personal opinion I don't think it says this. This is kind of the way I see it. He probably had a little knapsack. Because this is a bit of a journey and he's on foot, as far as I can tell. And so he probably threw some bread and water in his own bag and he is not going to touch anything. And I could be wrong about this, but it seems like once I cross the border into the northern kingdom, I am on my own. I got my own stuff. I'm going to sneak in, do the word. I'm going to come a different way home. I'm not eating and drinking nothing. They try to give me nothing from that land. It's kind of the way I'm seeing it. I don't know if I'm 100% on that, but that's the way I'm viewing it. Because I can't imagine this This was hours and hours and hours. I can't imagine with no water unless the Lord was going to do a miracle. (laughs) Maybe. But at any rate, he was clear on what the Lord had said to him. So we now know, without reading the rest of the story... Everyone could tell. Just put your thinking cap on. What's the devil going to try to get him to do on this journey? Eat some bread in the land. 
drink some water in the land, or go home the same way, or any combination of any of the three, any departation from the plan of God. So we already know what we're watching out for. It's going to be one of those, because that's what the Lord told him. And what else do we know? That's how the enemy works. He'll do the same thing with us. Okay, so let's go back and read verse 9 again. For so it was commanded. These are his orders, and he knows it. By the word of the Lord, saying, you'll not eat bread, you'll not drink water, you'll not return the same way you came. God was clear. So then after he finished talking to the king, saying, I won't take anything, then verse 10, so he went home another way. He did not return by the way he came to Bethel. All right, verse 11, here we go. Now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. And they also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. What's this? Grapevine. Word is traveling fast. Now right now we're getting across Bethel. You know, they don't have CNN, but it, word is traveling by mouth through Bethel. And these boys come running home, Dad, 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 you're not going to believe what happened at that new, that new temple that the king built. Oh, you got to hear this. This is not everyday stuff. And their father said to them, which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went who came from Judah. So he said to his sons, warm up the Cadillac. Saddle the donkey for me. And so they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode on it, and went after the man of God, and found him sitting under an oak tree. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. And he said, Come home with me, and eat bread. But we didn't get very far, did we? There it is. Right off, of all the things he could have said to him, he says, well, tell me what just happened. Let me hear. Talk to me about the things of God. Or, are you from Judah? How are things in the southern kingdom these days? How's your new king? Ours is a bit of a pistol. <laughs> you know, of all the things they could have talked about. No. Come home with me and eat bread. And there it is. Why? Because it's all part of the devil's plan. Now, is he a prophet of God? Yes. But does he have flesh? Yes. Because we know, now bird's eye view, he's being tempted to deviate from what God told him. So is this old prophet being led by God in this moment? No. He's following something other than any instructions from God. Because he's trying to get the young prophet to deviate. Now, and again, how does the devil operate? Deception, cunning, he is sly, he is crafty, and he's going to be tricky about it, all right? Verse 15, he said, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I cannot return with you, nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way you came. So up to this moment, Still no confusion. He knows what the Lord said to him. And he's right on, right on target, on track. He's on the path. Verse 18. He said to him, I too am a prophet, as you are. And that part's true. He is. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. And Scripture, just to make sure we don't miss the point, Scripture tells us he was lying. Again, now, is he, is he being led by God in this moment? No. No. I'll say, though, is he hearing the voice of the devil and consciously saying, I'm going to follow the devil? No. There's something in his flesh that's tempting him. We'll talk about that in a moment. But it's not that he's just knowingly trying to cause this guy to sin. He's after something. He's after something. We'll talk about that in a moment. The young prophet should have recognized it. He knew what the Lord said to him. And he should have seen right through this. He should have said, now let me get this straight. 
The word of the Lord came to me and told me very specifically that I'm not to eat bread, drink water, and I'm to take a different route home. But you're telling me that, that there's been a change in the plans, and for some reason God decided to send an angel to deliver a message to you so that you could, by chance, come find me, and you just happened to find me taking a break under this oak tree, probably in the heat of the afternoon, to let me know there's been a change of plans rather than him just tell me himself, right? I mean, he should have seen through this. Interesting. I'll, 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 I've kind of already said this, um, but I'll point it out. Was he the old prophet now? Was he a man of God? Yes. Can he lie? Are you a child of God? Are you capable of lying? Now, I'm not saying do you. I'm not saying did you this morning. Are you capable? See, we follow God because we choose to. Prophets serve God because they choose to. They're not puppets. If they're smart, they serve God wholeheartedly and obey Him. But they have flesh too. And something is tempting Him. Enough so, He was willing to lie. Hmm. Prophets can lie. Verse uh, 19. So He went back with Him and ate bread in his house and drank water. He fell for it. I kind of wonder, and I'll talk about this more in a moment, I don't know so much that he was thoroughly deceived other than there was something that was tempting him too. So here it is, but here's, here's kind of the big thing. On one level, I will say real quick, uh, we're not throwing stones. I'm not picking on him just because he made a poor choice. Um, Every one of us in this room, from me to you, all of us, are capable. And if we're honest, we've all made poor choices and done things we shouldn't have done. Probably even things we're not very proud of. Things we had to repent of. And no, we're not going to compare notes and pass the mic. No, no, none of that. It's under the blood. We've all repented. But we're all capable. And I'm I'm not judging him for that. But it is in here for us to learn from. So... Something happened. And just like we talked about last week, you can be so absolutely clear on what God has said to you and still miss it and still take off in the wrong direction. And he did. Mm. Verse 20. Now it happened, as they sat at the table, that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. Now all of a sudden, the word of the Lord is coming to the old prophet. And you might think, the one who just lied through his teeth? Yeah. And I know people can struggle with that. I go back to, and one of my favorite examples is Peter. Do you remember? It was Peter the day when Jesus turned to all of them and said, who do they say that I am? And they said this, they said that, but it was Peter that said, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah the son of the living God. And you remember Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, you didn't figure that because you're so smart. He said, you didn't figure that out on your own. God revealed that to you. He's saying the Holy Spirit on the inside of you opened your eyes to a truth that you could not have figured out on your own. You got that by revelation. And that's a wonderful thing. And praise God. And in what happened later the same day, Jesus is trying to explain to them. He's talking about the cross. I'm going to go to the cross. When we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested. And I'm going to get put on trial. And I'm going to die. And he's trying to prepare them. And you remember what Peter did? Pulled Jesus apart from the other eleven. Got him private. And rebuked him. Now, Jesus, we can't have you talking about this dying stuff. You've got to quit this. Quit talking like that. You can't let them hear things like that. It's bad for morale. Or whatever he was saying. But he rebuked Jesus. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. The same guy who earlier that day was getting revelation straight from the Holy Spirit that he could not have heard on his own. Just a few hours later, he's now being influenced by the devil to try and get Jesus. What? Off of God's plan for him. Same scenario. 
So can a prophet do the same thing Peter did? Yeah, he just did it in the other order. One moment he's lying through his teeth, and the next moment he's hearing the Holy Spirit on the inside of him saying, deliver this word of the Lord. Absolutely what's going on. The word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back, and he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back and ate bread and drank water in the place of which the Lord said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. Judgment happened for a blatant disobedience. His wrong decision is going to cost him his life. I'll throw this out. Should the young prophet now be just angry and passing blame on the old prophet? Ultimately, no. He, he knew better. He made the choice to go home with him. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he knew what he was not supposed to do. I'll just say this. It applies with Eve in the garden. It applies with all of us in every situation. You can't blame the temptation or the tempter. We made the choice. So we need to own our choices. Um, First John, uh, John 5.18 says this. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. That word keep there means to attend to carefully, to take care of, to guard, to keep one in the state in which he is. In other words, the one that's following God is careful to keep him where he's supposed to be and not get mis off track or misguided by temptation. If you keep yourself right where the Lord told you to be, then the devil can't get at you. If he'd have just said no and not gone home with the older prophet, He'd have lived out his life. He'd have gone on to do other wonderful things, working for the Lord. He was a good kid. He was, I, I don't know why I keep calling him the young prophet. I think it said that in there. In my mind, he's a young dude. Anyway, back to verse 23. So it was, after he'd eaten bread and after he had drunk, that he saddled the donkey for him, the prophet whom had brought him back. I think at this point, the older prophet just realized what all had just happened and realized the gravity of what he had just done I don't think at any point even to the point of lying that he's thinking I'm doing the devil's work I think he was just being selfish over something and all of a sudden he, he just realized my selfishness put him in hot water and he did something that's going to cost him his life and this old prophet now I'm not. I'm, I'm sure God's convicting him, but his heart is condemning him, and he's feeling guilt. And so, real quick, he's like, uh, uh, "Here, take my Cadillac. Just hop on my donkey and go. It's okay." He, he's feeling guilty. Um, so it was after he'd read uh, verse 24 when he was gone. So now he's on the old prophet's Cadillac. A lion met him on the road and killed him. And his corpse was thrown on the road, and the donkey stood by it, and the lion also stood by the corpse. So he didn't even make it out of the northern kingdom. He did not make it home again. He did not go back to see any family. Um, and we'll see before the story ends, his body never did leave the northern kingdom. He was buried in the northern kingdom. Um, but this is also a sign um, typically, when a lion kills something, it's because he's hungry. And they tend to eat what they kill most of the time. In this case, the lion killed the guy and then just kind of parked next to him and looked at him and didn't take a bite. He just sat there. That in and of itself is a sign. But now look at the donkey. The donkey that was carrying this dude kind of stands there while the lion kills his passenger. And what's the donkey do? Just stood there. Did not run away in fear. Had no concern that he was next. Because 
Donkeys taste good too. <laughs> to lions. I don't know, I've never had donkey. But to lions, this is a sign. So the young prophet's corpse is just laying there and he's got a lion. I'm picturing a lion on one side and a donkey on the other. And they're all just chilling, hanging out. It's a sign that there's something happening here. Verse 25, And there men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road and the lion standing by the corpse. And they went and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. Once again, news travels. This is this is out of the ordinary stuff. This isn't, you know, neighbor Joe planted beans today. This is fun, not fun stuff, but this is out of the ordinary stuff. Hmm. Now, when the prophet who had brought him back from the way he heard it, he said, it is the man of God who was disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has delivered him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. Sometimes when I read this account, you ever just want to throttle someone? <laughs> I sometimes feel that way about the old prophet. Because not only was he the one that tempted him to get off course, now he's acting like, I'm the one in the know, and I know what I think is going on, and yes, he did this, and he did that, and no mention of his part in the story. He's just, I don't know, maybe it's just the way I'm reading it. Verse 27. Then he spoke to his son, saying, Saddle the donkey for me. Apparently he had more than one Cadillac. And so they saddled it, and he went and found the corpse thrown on the road, and the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. The lion had not eaten the corpse nor torn a donkey. And the prophet took up the corpse of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back. So the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. And then he laid the corpse in his own tomb. And they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And so it was after he had buried him that he spoke to his son, saying, When I am dead... Then bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. All kinds of weird things come to mind. Um, I just don't think this is what the young prophet had in mind. In that culture especially, it was a huge, even honor to be buried with your fathers. To be buried next to your father and your grandfather and your great grandfather, and they would all be buried in the same place. You remember, he was, uh, wasn't it Joseph that said, Don't leave my bones in Egypt. When you leave, you take me with you. Even though he's long gone, he says, You, you bring my bones with you. And they did. There's, there's just something in that culture. So now all of a sudden, he is still in Israel, and he is still being buried with Jews, but it's not his family. And weirdly, this old prophet is sticking him, put him in my grave. And when I die, put me right next to him so that we can be right next to each other. I, I just, it's interesting to me. So I want to, I want to dig into this a little bit. Um, let me read verse 32. We'll finish this. Um, For the saying which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places which are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. He's reminding them what the young prophet said. He said, every bit of it's going to come to pass. Mark my words. So, back to our core verse, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Um, both of these guys strayed courses. Now, our focus really is on the younger prophet, but the old prophet's doing a similar thing. Um, something's pulling them. I want to I wanna ask the question, why did the young prophet do it? Why'd the old prophet do what he did? Now, I can give a general answer that answers the question. I'll take some guesses at a specific answer, and then we'll, we'll close. But that's the best I can do, because Scripture doesn't tell us exactly what was going on. But in a big picture, we know, because it's true of all of them, from Adam and Eve all the way to us, something was tempting them. Something was tempting the old prophet to put pressure on the young guy like he did. Something was tempting him strong enough that he was even willing to lie to get whatever it was he wanted. The young prophet, something was tempting him. And I don't think it was because he was hungry or thirsty. I really don't. There was something he felt 
that he wasn't getting that he wanted. There was something pulling him. And at the end of the day, the draw of whatever the temptations were was strong enough that they were willing to give in to the temptation and do what they should not have done. Now, in a big picture then, the word for that is covetousness. Uh, covet means to yearn to possess or to have something or someone. Covet means to desire intensely. In a, in a generic sense, something was tempting them that they wanted strong enough that they were willing to sin to get it. Whatever it was, their desire for it was stronger than their desire to please and obey God. In the young prophet's case, whatever it was he thought he was getting, he wanted it bad enough that he was willing to go against the word of the Lord and eat and drink in the northern kingdom, which he knew he wasn't supposed to. For the old prophet, whatever it was, he wanted it bad enough that he was willing to lie to get it. So whatever the temptations were, the principles are the same. They were coveting something. And by definition, that's idolatry. That's what idolatry is. So many times we think of idolatry and we picture little gold or platinum or brass idols or something, whether they be cows, because we see so many of those in the Old Testament, or whatever it was. Remember in Ephesus, they had little goddess Dianas. But whatever the case may be, we, we think of idols, and then somebody worshiping an idol. That's a picture of a, of a type of idolatry, but that's not really all idolatry is. Idolatry is simply you wanting something more than God. And you want it bad enough that you're willing to displease him to get what you want. That's idolatry. Um, Colossians 3, 5 says, Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Here's another passage where he's talking about all these things our flesh wants. And he lists some. He says, Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And he's letting us know. Covetousness idolatry. They're synonymous. They're interchangeable. We can go to Old Testament passages that talk about idolatry and just stick in the word covetousness. We could go to New Testament passages talking about covetousness, just stick in the word idolatry. Same thing. It's wanting something so bad that you're even willing to displease God to get it. Or it could be wanting someone so bad where you're coveting a person or you're coveting a thing, whatever it is, but you want it so much that you're willing to go too far to get it. You're willing to cross lines you wouldn't otherwise cross. You're willing to push boundaries you would not otherwise push. You're willing to do things that on any other day you would never do that. But in this case, it became a means to get something that you wanted more than you wanted to please God. Does that make sense? So in the general sense, that's what we know. They were being tempted for something that was more important to them in that moment than pleasing God. And it led to a downfall. Now that's all I can really say authoritatively. Um, I'll take a stab at it just for fun. Now this is me. Um, I'm, I'm putting out a couple theories, a hypothesis. I, I can't say, because it says over in 3rd in Kings that he was looking for this. Nah, there's no 3rd Kings, and it doesn't say that. But we can take a guess. So that's what I'll do, and then I'll close this morning. When, when I was in Bible school, they warned us, but there were a bunch of us young guys especially, and they said, as you get off into ministry, they said, there tend to be three things that will cause a, a young or middle-aged or old minister to get off, to get in trouble, um, to lose credibility, to potentially lose your ministry. They said in general terms, it comes down to what they called the three G's. Now keep in mind, I'm just, I'm a young man, so this fit me perfect. Um, but they said this, the three G's that will get off, get you off. Gold, girls, and glory. The three G's. When you start wanting money too much, and how many ministries get off because they're chasing money instead of God. Girls, 
How many preachers got in trouble because they started chasing the one they weren't married to? Okay? Or glory. When you start trying to take glory that's God's and not yours. You start taking credit for things that really aren't you. They're Him. And He'll not share His glory. Have you learned that? We see that in Scripture. He'll not share the glory. So, if I had to take a guess at what caused these two ministers to fall, I'm guessing it's probably one of the three G's. And when I look at these two guys, I don't think it was the gold. If that young prophet was after gold, he'd have, been, he'd have taken up the king on, on his offer, and he passed on that one like it was nothing. And there was no gold in the story after that. I didn't see any girls in the story anywhere. I don't even think there were any mentioned. No girls in the story. So I'm going to take a guess that maybe the glory was involved. They, they were trying to take something that wasn't theirs. Let's, uh, let's start with the old prophet. What would he be tempted by? Well, I'm sitting here thinking, he's an older prophet, he'd been a prophet his whole life, and I'm not saying he's a bad prophet. We have no reason to think that. Let's say he was a good prophet. Did his job. He served God, loves God. But now, through circumstances outside of his control, he watched his nation go through a civil war, and as it turns out, he ends up in the northern kingdom under a kooky king who's doing things that he knows are not right that he knows they're not godly and this is not the way it's supposed to be. He's a man of God and he knows this isn't right. And then what happens? Instead of God saying something to him, because he's right here in Bethel and it would have been a very short journey for him to come deliver the word of the Lord to the king. No, God chooses some young whippersnapper out of the southern kingdom, makes him walk a day's journey. I don't know how far. Back then, 20 miles was a day's journey on foot, I believe. I could be off on that. It wasn't as easy as us running you know, to Bloomington or something. He sends a young guy to come deliver the word of the Lord. And then he turns around and he's heading back out to the southern kingdom. And this prophet, who was here the whole time, didn't even know it was happening. God hadn't said a word to him. He didn't get to say anything to the king. He didn't get to see the withered hand. He wouldn't even know what had happened if his sons hadn't caught wind of it. He's very much feeling outside of the loop. And it seems to me, and here's me kind of guessing... He got left out. And if your ego gets involved a little bit, why isn't God using me to do this? I want in on this. So what do you maybe try to do? Maybe I can buddy up to that young guy God did use. And maybe I need people around here in my, in my town of Bethel to know that me and that young prophet, yeah, we serve the same God. In fact, we're buddies. Yeah, we're friends. We, we, we do this stuff all the time. In fact, he came to my house. After he did all that with the king, he came to my house to kick back and relax before he went home. He, we had a meal and we joked and told stories and had a good time. What's he trying to do? Trying to attach himself to the young man because he was feeling very left out and it was hurting his ego. So if it were one of those three things, I don't see gold or girls, I think he was pursuing for some glory that he was feeling left out of. Again, this is my theory. All right? But he was trying to take something that wasn't his. He was desperate to suddenly become good friends with this young guy before he just missed out on everything. Because it, it sure fits his behavior. He was willing to do anything he could to get him to come eat in his house so he'd have a story to tell. Yeah, we ate together. He's my buddy. Yeah, we go back. We go back a long ways. Sure you did. Again, I, I, that's all I got on him. So th there's my guess. What about the young one? Again, clearly wasn't moved by the gold, and I didn't see any girls in the story, so what glory was he missing out on? From his point of view, so he had to quietly come into the kingdom, all the way to Bethel. Nobody knew who he was. He'd maybe never been this far north before. He's from the southern kingdom. He's a young man, born and raised in Judah. They didn't travel as much in those days. So it's very possible this is the first time he's ever been to Bethel. Nobody knows him. It's not like as they're coming, everyone's going, Oh, look, it's the man of God. Probably nothing. And he comes waltzing in, and he, he does his job. He delivers the word like he's supposed to. 
He watches God move, and he knows that's not him. He's, he's front row watching God deliver a sign to this northern kingdom. But then what's his job? I don't get to stay and have lunch with nobody. I don't get to eat bread or drink water, and I can't even go home the same way I came. Everybody I met coming in is not going to see me again, and on my way out, everybody I see is not going to know who I am. Because he will, in this day and age, his way out will probably be faster than the word traveling behind him of, did you hear about that prophet in Bethel? And he's going to be in the kingdom. He's literally, if I can say it this way, he's going to blow in, blow up, and blow out. And he's not going to see anybody twice. And what's he not getting? No glory. No pat on the back. No, wow. Did you see what God did when you delivered that word? No getting to tell the story and share with anyone. So the best I can come up with, what was so tempting about getting to go to that guy's house? To kind of sit back and talk about what just happened. And, man, here's what I was doing and here's what I said. Man, God did this and, and, uh, and oh, it was so great. And a little bit of, look what God did through me. Just a little bit of glory. Again, that's what I got. Do I know that's what it was? No. That's all I got to go on. But at the end of the day, I can say this. In both cases, they were being tempted by a desire for something that became stronger in them than their desire to please God and obey Him. And that's what got Him in trouble. It'll get us in trouble every time. So I'll close with the same verse that got us here. Go back to 1 John 2. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Amen? When you know you've heard God, not only do what I say, stick with it, be ready to be tempted to let go of it. Because that's how the devil's going to work. Recognize it when it comes and then just say, there it is. I knew this was going to come. And he's tempting me to let go of what God told me. But I'm going to stick with what I heard. Amen? Amen. 